0: Welcome to Beyond the Minimum, where we'll be exploring the world of work. We'll be chatting about concepts, ideas, and phrases, explore practices, and delve into what good looks like. Work can be purposeful, value-led, and more meaningful to all who interact with the workplace. This podcast is brought to you by Tanya Hewitt, who lives in unceded Algonquin Anishabe territory, otherwise known as Ottawa, Ontario, Canada.
1: I am really excited to be able to share with you today's episode. This is an interview with Richard Knowles. I met Richard in, I think it was 2018. There was a conference, maybe it was 2019. You know what, the years are blending together. Um, There was a conference in Jacksonville, Florida, on, I think it might've been labeled safety two in practice. And I met a whole lot of people. In fact, Adam Johns, who you heard um, introduce this episode in all episodes. And um, Richard Knowles was there. I can remember him answering a question or offering an opinion after a presentation that was given at the conference, which, you know, is par for the course at conferences. And he gave a really unique Answer or opinion. I remember going up to him afterwards and chatting with him a little bit because I just thought it was so fascinating what he had said. I'm not going to go into any of that because you'll hear him say it through his own words, but he got into a really different way of managing way before m- most other people had. And that differentiation of him from his colleagues, his co-managers made him stand out. You'll hear why as this interview proceeds. But I am privileged to have met Richard Knowles and that he agreed to be on this podcast. Um, He has shared his story with a few different networks There are different aspects to it, and um, the the whole story is likely ascertained through uh, one of his books that he's written, which you can access through the show notes, but um, he's just a joy to listen to. So sit back and relax. This too is a longer episode than the solo episodes, but is so worthwhile because you will hear... What good looks like even under trying circumstances and the entire time he managed it was under a period of austerity and he still was able to turn a large chemical plant around to be healthy i really am excited for you to hear this and thanks so much there is so incre- so much incredible value in what Richard Knowles is going to tell you guys. And it is amazing that there are people out there who really grasp this idea of going beyond the minimum.
0: Today's episode is what good looks like.
1: So thank you so much, Richard, for joining this podcast on trying to help people understand what good looks like.
2: Well, thank you very much. I'm so pleased and honored to be asked to share some of this thinking with you because I love this work and it's so important to have everybody go home in one piece. And that's what safety is all about.
1: Wonderful. So why don't we start with the company that you're going to be talking about? what the company did, and what your role was in that company.
2: I worked for DuPont Company for 35 years. I started in research, got 40 patents, and moved over to manufacturing and was a plant manager in three big plants, big chemical plants. The one I'll be talking mostly about today is the one that in Bell, West Virginia. It handles the second highest number of hazardous materials in DuPont, it's 1,300 people. It's about a mile long, and a third of a mile wide. So it's a pretty good-sized facility with a lot of complexity. That's the DuPont before all the things happened where they merged with Dow and then got chopped up into different pieces. So the DuPont today is not the company with which I worked.
1: Okay. <laughs> That's good to get that on the record. Can you talk about some of the hiring and onboarding practices and the training practices that you had?
2: Well, that's an interesting subject because all the time in my years as a plant manager, we were under severe cost pressures. Over the 10 years in which I was involved in plant management, I hired once and had 15 layoffs. In West Virginia, I had three layoffs over a course of uh, seven years and layoffs are very hard but we just weren't bringing in new people because the pressures and the costs that were so high that it was always in the other direction how can you do more with less and that's that's the pressure we were under all the time and so it was it was hard we did a lot of training for those who were at work and uh, we tried to spend maybe as much as 8 or 10 percent of the person's time would be involved in learning some new skills or refreshing the older ones or whatever. But we tried to keep on top of the training because it's important when you're handling hazardous chemicals. That's not the original amateur hour and uh, people had to do it well and the folks did it well.
1: Well, well, thanks for sharing that, because I think a lot of people are under the impression that they need money in order to be able to get a good culture but you've just told us this whole story as you're going to be sharing with us was done under very strict cost pressures
2: there were every conversation with corporate began with cost problems of one kind or another and costs are an outcome of what you decide to do so if you decide to do a b and c and do you Work to do them well, and the costs are going to be what they are. You're working at the wrong end of the process when you pound on cost, but the corporate guys never quite got that because they're always looking at how much things cost. In a manufacturing operation, the biggest cost and a whole step from beginning to end is the cost of manufacture. And the sales guys just have a grand old time beating up the manufacturing guys over that. But that's what you know, that's the nature of it. So we had to work try to become more effective. And the best way to become more effective is to have more and more people pulling together to help make things work, rather than people pulling separately and pulling back or resisting change. And if people create their change, they don't resist it. And so as we learn together about how to do things differently, you can get better and better and better. Even when you had to have a reduction in force, which was very painful. And we tried very hard to share all the information we could with people. I walked the plant five hours a day and I kept track of that. And that was for seven and a half years. I worked crummy hours, but that's tough. But as we shared information and did it with respect and built more and more respect, trust begins to build. And when trust begins to build, people begin to feel that it's safe enough to talk together and safe enough to come up with new ideas and talk about them and begin to encourage people to try their ideas, talk to their other folks and see if it's good. Let's not going to wing it, but let's see if we can take these new ideas and get better. And more and more people began to do that and they liked it.
1: How long does it take to build that kind of trust?
2: I have a chart that shows the rate of change across that time period. In the first year, if we had four or five changes, that was a big deal. By the end of the seven and a half years that I was there, we were having four or five big changes a month. And people were pushing me to move faster. And I actually had to slow them down so we wouldn't outrun the technology. Because if you outrun your technology in a chemical plant, you, you get a fire or some kind of terrible calamity. So people learned to more and more to move into change. And as they create change, then they can say, look what I did. That brings great meaning into their work. And we learned to listen to each other and talk with each other. Some days it went well. Some days they were pretty tough conversations.
1: Can you describe those two extremes? What what would a good day look like? And what would a, a day that perhaps was not so good, what would that look like?
2: Well... It would begin, I'd walk out into the plant. And since I was in the plant, I had a lot of good sense about subtle things. And within 10 minutes and walking into the plant, I could tell whether or not there was a problem of morale by the amount of coffee cups and candy wrappers that had collected in the railroad tracks, which is where the wind blows stuff that people throw in the ground. So when the tracks were clean, I knew we were off to a good start. If they weren't, I knew we had some things that were causing some troubles someplace. So that was one of the things, paying attention to the, for me, that's a leading indicator, but I could do it because I was close and I I knew what that was telling me. And then sitting down with the people and talking with the people and listening together. Those were good days. And I would wander the plant. I never drove around the plant. I'd wander and I never told people where I was going. My secretary had a good idea, but you know, she kept her counsel on that and didn't call up everybody. Although there were secret messages going around the plant all the time about me being out there. They're always were keeping her eye out. And the bad day would be one where there's trash in the tracks and there's some kind of a unrest going on. It can be around something pretty serious, like maybe someone's gotten hurt and we're all struggling with that. Fortunately that did not happen very often. Or it could be around something simple, like one time we decided to have a little award for everybody for having some good safety month. And we're going to give everybody a pint of ice cream. And I caught all kind of flack over that because they said, you know, it's pretty cheap. You know, isn't this serious? You know, all we get is a pint of ice cream. Well, you know, (laughs) so you put up with some of that now. And then as in our leadership role, we've made mistakes. And at first the tendency was like in any Standard organization to come up with some cock and bull story about why it wasn't a mistake, which kills your credibility. So we just go out and say to the people, you know, we've made a mistake, sorry, we'll try to do better. Would you help us? And most of the time the people would get past the problem and come and help us. So we found that if we asked for help and we're sincere about it, not just being you know trivial. The people would come so good days when people were talking bad days when there was something going on and everybody was sort of on the edge of their seat, you know, and and we'd be worried. We did One of the safety audits, which was very important, was one we called the safe acts audits. And we go out in the plant and walk around and catch people doing things right. Now and then we see something was wrong, but 90 over well over 90% of the stuff we saw people were doing things right which is true uh, probably in most organizations, although we focus at the negative. And if their safety, as we were doing these audits, we kept a trend line. And if the trend line began to drop, we knew we had trouble. We had to react very quickly. We'd have an accident within three days. It was really kind of creepy. So we kept, you know, try to pay attention to leading indicators that would tell us that, you know, something's shifting here, pay attention. So good days were ones where we had great talks, Days that weren't so good as where we had some kind of a upset where someone got hurt or the media was raising particular fuss about something or other, which they did regularly down there in that community. But it was being in the process every day with the people. We talked together. I didn't talk at them. I talked with them because they had insights and things that they knew that I didn't know that were very important. It was like being on a beach ball. If I'm on the red stripe, you're on the green stripe. We both can see some of the things that we each see, but we also see things that, neither, that the other person can't see. And if we're going to get better, but who's this to share? Not because of rank or anything like that, but just if we want to get better. And that was the whole goal. How can we get better? In spite of the very harsh cost pressures that we were under, how can we get better? And the people did amazing things together. We cut our injury rates by 97% down to a 0.3 total recordable injury rate, which is pretty good. And people sustained that for 12 years. And we were also under the cost pressures, and our earnings went up 300% at the same time. So you can have good costs, and you can have good safety, and good environmental performance if everybody's pulling together. But if you're fighting among yourselves and not pulling together and not sharing information, not being respectful and listening and talking about stuff, it doesn't mean you agree. But if you can do all those things, people more and more want to do well. Most people want to be winners. And people get a kick out of being winners. And they get a big kick out of it if they see that they contributed to being winners. And so it was that kind of a thing that was going on to, to help. And people were going home safely, which was so important. And they were getting more safe off the job as well as on the job, which was important. And when now, you talk when we, about
1: off the job, how how would you know?
2: We talk about it. You know, somebody could you know in our safety meetings, someone might report an automobile accident, or someone might not become able to come to work because they fell out of a tree stand during hunting season and broke a leg. Uh, it's that kind of stuff and we talk about those things and try to you know help people what kind of off the job safety things do they need to have one of the funny tales in the community down there was that you could drive around in the summer and knew and know who worked for DuPont they were the ones wearing safety shoes the rest of the people were wearing flip-flops it's you know people can take this home not because of the fear of punishment but because they know that's a better way to do it so that they don't get hurt getting hurt's painful most of us don't start today wanting to get hurt.
1: You have an anecdote about somebody who obviously didn't wake up in the morning to screw up at work. Nobody does. But he did have a problem. And can you just tell us that story?
2: Yeah, I'd be glad to. This was a story about an operator who was a very fine operator. He did most of the training of the operators in his group. He often did a lot of the troubleshooting and management and supervisors really depended on him to the point where they were putting too much pressure and weight on him and he was working really hard. And one day he made a bad mistake and we would had a a shutdown and there were some valves that were closed and he did something wrong and tried to cover it up and cut the locks off of one of the valves, which normally would result in termination. But one of my processes was always to meet with a person that was being terminated even after all the investigations because things come out of the woodwork and as he and i were talking about this and i you know i asked him i said you you have a heck of a great reputation what happened and he began to cry and he was under huge pressures at home as well and his daughter had become pregnant there was a problem with drugs And he was feeling totally responsible for having failed at home as well as at work. And I realized that this guy is, you know, we're all human beings. I mean, how much can we take before we do something that's wrong? So I didn't terminate him. But I went back to management and said, you all are putting way too much pressure on him. You got to, you don't do this. You got to treat him with a little more respect and, and help him. Don't do the stuff you're doing which did not go well with the management people because they didn't like being criticized. So it was a difficult situation. I felt that we didn't talk about stuff coming from home all the time, but we had to pay attention to the pressures that people were under because all of us have life pressures that we're trying to deal with in one way or another. And some days we have good days at home, and some days they're not so great at home. We're dealing with human beings. and We're not dealing with parts of a machine that we can throw away when they wear out or interchangeable parts that's not the case so we did that with this fellow and in the long run it worked out very well and i think i did the right thing on that particular one
1: you had talked before that you were in a very difficult environment with layoffs and people being terminated can you talk about that process and how you were involved with letting people go
2: well the people were Left the organization either in a reduction in force, which was a force leaving, or because of some discipline problem. So if we're talking about a discipline problem, we would have three-step procedure to try to help them get back working well. If they didn't and persisted, and we came to determination, I would meet with each one personally to try to find out anything more. Some people were pretty rough, and I would have a deputy sheriff in the next office. For almost everybody that we terminated that way, I had police protection for about three weeks just because people get real upset over this. It's hard stuff. When we were having a reduction because of cost pressures and we had to keep contracting, we would announce that it was by seniority, we would announce the reduction in force. Then over the next 36 hours, I met with every person on the plant in a meeting to to explain what was going on and why. And so... Meetings of 50 people. If you have 1,200 people, how many meetings is that? 12, 16 meetings, something like that. Yeah. So I do them in a day and a half. Every hour, I have another meeting, another bunch of people coming in. And they were pretty upset most of the time. Is you know, perfectly understandable. They want me to guarantee not having another. And I'd say, I can't guarantee that. I can't guarantee I'm going to work hard to try to avoid it. And I need your help. But I can't guarantee we're never going to have one. And people didn't like that, but they respected it. People can handle the truth. If you don't do information and share information, people will make it up. And usually that's a lot worse than what is actually going on. So we tried to share information fully, let people know what we're trying to do and why. And they began to share information as well. It was interesting when we really began to open up and share information, which was a change. People were shocked at how little we knew as management. They decided they better help us. You know, too many times in management, it's like the Wizard of Oz, where the, where the uh, wizard is behind the curtain pulling levers. And when Toto pulls it back, everybody sees it. So when we began to share information, people said, holy crow, these guys need help. And we asked for help, and people would come forward and help. And it was a wonderful experience, and we all grew together. And people, even when I, as a manager, got in trouble a few times for pushing the envelope, people would support me in that. And uh, you know, I get called up to corporate for some kind of a thing where I was getting scolded about something, and get back to the plant, and they're doing small things, but they're greeting me back and thanking me for trying to do the things that it, what they felt were the right things for them, which we tried to do. We weren't giving away the store. We cut our injury rates ninety-seven percent, emissions to the environment went down ninety-five percent, earnings went up three hundred percent, productivity is up forty-five percent. So as people talk together and learn together and found that we could do things together much better, the total performance improved. And it became, for me, a much easier way to lead. You know, I could lead by going out and fussing and raising cane, but I didn't like fighting all the time. And as we began to change, things got much, much more effective and much, much easier for everybody, including the neighbors. And it was a great thing to watch. I love to watch people grow and begin to do things they never dreamed they could do. For example, we were converting our process control systems from the pneumatic systems of the 60s to electronic control systems to get better yields and precision and purity. The normal process is to build a parallel control system and run it for a while and see if it works and then change over. We decided that was too expensive. We had good engineers. So we began to make the changeovers and we never ran parallel. And we did 16 process changes never ran parallel, and never failed. And we cut the time and the cost in half for making these conversions. And it was all because the people were all engaged and they all were bound and determined to make it work. And they did. We'd have project status reviews standing up in the control room while the processes are running every week. So everybody knew what was going on. And and people could see the difference. and, And I had to run interference with them we were switching over using Honeywell instruments. And so I sent 15 operators and mechanics to the Honeywell school out in Arizona. It happened to be winter time. I get a call from corporate. What are you sending all your people out to Arizona on a vacation in the winter? Said, Wait a minute. We have to know how to run this stuff. That's what they're out there for. And so I had to push. I was sort of the designated hand grenade catcher from corporate. We were doing things that got our performance results much, much better, which was important for the corporate and for the business. And and it was was fun to watch and and see how the people got better and better. And as we opened up the communications, anybody could talk to anybody at any level in any organization about any question they had. And people did that. And we had one Margaret Wheatley, a consultant, come and see what we were doing. And she walked around the plant for a couple of days with the operators and came back and said, I can't believe what you're doing here. These people know everything that's going on. I said, yep, that's what's going on. And that's that's how we're doing it. And and the people didn't fail. They didn't let me down. I don't think they were taking information and using it badly out in the community and with our secrets and stuff. I don't think that happened. But our performance got so good that some of the other managers in the the local area thought I was lying about our results. So I had to invite them in. They would walk around for a day or so and come back just shaking their heads saying, what the heck are you doing here? It's so simple. It's sitting with people, listening, talking together, learning together, helping each other, maintaining high standards. It doesn't mean you get wishy washy. But as we work together that way, the people became more and more able to do quite astonishing things. And that was so much fun to watch. Now, all this change process is one that most of the change takes place, they're small changes. People are helping each other. People are picking up trash. They're doing different kind of stuff. And if I had not been out in the plant, I would never have seen this. It's not the kind of stuff you see sitting up in your office. So I had to be out in the plant learning. And most of the changes are little. Some are middle sized and some are big, like the process control changes. But they don't happen very often. And you really don't know just when those things are going to become possible to do. But you keep at it and, you, and it builds up. And if people learn today, I can do something good. Tomorrow, they're going to try something again. But not just winging it. They're talking together. They're working it out, talking to the safety folks. You know, what does this look like? And we're keeping track of our records, you know, writing up the procedures to keep them current so we don't lose our technology, which you can do if you're not careful. But all the people did it. When we converted and started using ISOs, our operators wrote the ISO procedures. And it worked really good, and it freed up the engineers to do what they needed to do. So,
1: so there, there really was, wasn't much of an us-them gap in your plant.
2: Early on, there was a big us-them gap. And getting to, able to talk with people was tough. Towards the end, there was no gap at all. You know, we'd talk about everything. And even when I screwed up, I'd catch a lot of hell from people. <laughs> early on, I had the power to make people disappear. I could walk into a building, and nobody's there. Leave the building, it's filled up with people. Go back in the building, nobody's there. It took a while to get past that of people disappearing. But people have to have confidence. And if you have a culture like one more common in DuPont at the time was people didn't like to talk together. People were afraid of management. People were afraid of sharing information. They wouldn't do it. People would tend to hide mistakes. And you simply can't learn. You can't get better. I'm so frustrated right now with the whole safety industry because so many of them are just working at a fairly low level. It's needed, it's important, but it's more than just training that we're talking about. And so many of them seem to be very reluctant to go out and sit down with the people and talk about what's going on. What are we learning? How can we get better? And gee whiz, you know, is everything okay? Uh, it, you know, Is there anything at home that's really eating at you? So it was all of these kinds of things to, to try to come together with the people and to be available and to talk. And during this process, I grew a lot because I went in as a pretty hard top-down manager. And so the people were watching me learn and grow at the same time as they were trying. And I think that helped them. To, you know, If I could do it, maybe they could do it. I came out of that much more as a whole person than when I was in, went in. And I was not happy with myself being a hard top down manager. I didn't like the fighting. we could get results, but they wouldn't stick. so as I came out of that i I grew up a lot during that period, and that was really important for me to to do that develop some wonderful friendships. I still have great friendships with the people there, a lot of them some of them maybe a little less but uh you know we were all together and we made. The intention of the company, they didn't tell me this when I went there, was to shut the plant down. We became so good that that just went away. They never went back to look at shutting it down again. We saved a lot of jobs. A lot of kids got educated because their parents still were able to have good jobs and bring in money and support their education or pay off their mortgages and whatnot. So it's a, there's a lot of responsibility to try to keep this as a viable performing activity that's safe and profitable profits are the money you need today. So you can do business tomorrow. And it's, you know, you got to keep that in mind. We got to be around tomorrow as well. So it's, it's doing things with the people, developing and co-creating how we want to be together and work together. You know, we wanted to tell the truth. We wanted to help each other. We wanted to share information. We want needed to apologize for mistakes. And, you know, I learned to do a lot of apologizing because I didn't do so well sometimes. But we all began to do better and better as we learned together. And as we learned together, the total performance got a whole lot better. Earnings were better. Safety was better. Quality was better. Delivery times were better. Relationships with the community were a whole lot better. Relationships with the regulators were a whole lot better. The one plant not that one but another one where i was working and the epa was raising a fuss about what we were doing our guys they get together and they have a meeting on thursdays to talk about what they were going to be doing and then they had to share it with the epa guys on friday and all the time i'm pushing you know, share information talk with people i discovered that they just had decided to cut out one of those meetings and they had the epa to put them in their planning meetings <laughs> i said you did what <laughs> <laughs> but it worked fine. So, okay. <laughs> My belief is that people are basically trying to do well. People are trying to find meaning in their life. People are struggling with different kinds of things all the time. Everyone has a story. We need to listen to each other. We need to help each other to learn and grow and understand the standards and live up to them as best we can. And, uh, and deal with problems. If you've got a problem, you just can't have rose-colored glasses all the time and pretend that something's okay when it's not. But it's so easy. This is the easy way to lead. When everybody is pulling together, I'm a cheerleader. I'd much rather be a cheerleader than a slave driver. It's a much, much easier way to lead and a heck of a lot more effective. And towards the end of the time I was there, I had some of the hard-headed business managers and corporate tell me it was the best-running plant in the whole DuPont company. We'd gone from bottom of 150 to about the top not because of me but because the people were all doing so well and growing and learning and all i did was set the conditions where that could happen it didn't cost any money it cost some shoe leather i walked a lot this stuff is it's so easy a lot of people don't believe it can happen i did some work in since i retired in a small company and They were having a lot of injury problems. And Claire and I did a couple of day workshop, just two days. They went from having six injuries a year in a small group to having one in three years. And the vice president who had me come in said, well, what did you do? I said, well, we talked to the people and had a little workshop. And they decided they didn't need to work that way. He said, yeah, but what did you do? He just didn't get that talking with the people and listening and learning together and, and asking them for their help could achieve something like that. And that change was fast. I mean, they went from having six injuries a year to none, except for one in three years, just overnight. And and that's happened in other places in which we've worked. So I have such a passion for this work. I still continue to work on it. I'm trying to make my technology that I use less complicated. So I've created what I call the cycle of intelligence. When you bring people together and you talk about things, the collective intelligence goes up. It was not unexpected and So we just have a deliberate, focused way in which we have the conversation and the intelligence goes up. And we've done this in hundreds of workshops. And as long as people are willing to listen, talk together, learn, this process never fails to improve results. That's kind of a bold statement. But I've done hundreds of workshops. And as long as people are willing to talk about stuff, we make great progress. And it can happen fast. It's amazing how fast it can happen. The last workshop I did, a whole group of about 15 guys changed in an hour and a half. And now they're learning to sustain it by carrying forward the conversation. And they did it. I didn't do it. I just had the conversation. But people aren't listened to so much of the time. Or they don't talk to each other. Or they're afraid. But it doesn't cost you anything to create the conditions where people can talk with each other. And they can share. And they can help each other. And they can find meaning in their work. And people seem to like that a whole lot better. Sure as heck, works a whole lot better in terms of results.
1: So, Richard, this has been a really fulsome discussion. Is there anything that I haven't asked you, but I should have, in order to understand this entire way of being able to have such a wonderful workplace?
2: Well, you probably should have said, well, why did it take you so long? I've been at trying to develop the technology in a way that's easily shared and that people can do it with a relatively little training and they don't have to be dependent on a consultant maybe to get started but not not for long and and i look at what i've got here and i said it took me 35 years to figure this out you know but it was part of it was figuring it out part of it was trying to get the technology so it made sense you know i'm a scientist I just don't want to wing stuff or come up with some kind of cock and bull stories. So I need stuff that there's a foundation that you can stand on and that you can defend it. And so I used a lot of that in trying to get more and more clear. And this process just works so astonishingly well. And it's so easy. It can be learned quite quickly by people. And they've got to carry it forward, but that's, they can learn that too. So it's... a uh, I just wish I could find more people with him to talk about this because I have such a passion for it because it does work, you know. So, on easy.
1: that, Richard, how would people contact you if they are inspired by this and they want to to reach you to learn how to start this whole process?
2: Give me a call. My phone number is 716-622-6467. six two two six four six seven. I'm in the Eastern Time Zone, so don't call me. You know, much before nine in the morning or in the evening. But you know during the day, I'd be glad to talk with you. Now, I've got other conference calls going, so sometimes we'll have to arrange to connect. But call me or go to my website, rnnolzassociates.com. And there's information there. And I've written some books about this. One of them was called The Leadership Dance which we can get on Amazon. It's an Amazon bestseller, and you know, although it's 20 years old, it's never going to go out of date because what we've talked about today is not some gimmick. We're talking today about basic fundamental ways in which to lead that are powerful and enduring. This is not the flavor of the month stuff that we're talking about. And so we can talk about those things. And I can talk to you too, about the struggle, the personal struggles that, you know, what are you going to go through? and, and, That kind of stuff. So it's, I'll be glad to talk with you about it. As you can tell, I have a little passion for this. As long as I'm able, I'm going to keep plugging away at it.
1: Well, I'm so thankful that you were willing to share this story with us, because I think the more that we can learn from people such as yourself about how we can make workplaces so engaging and fun to be in, the more places we can get to be this way. So well, thank
2: you and it's fun is a good word to use. It's not frivolous but it's a sense of satisfaction that people have doing really good work and knowing that they're doing good work and that they contributed to it. Well thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the invitation and hopefully somebody heard and somebody will listen. I've also have a newsletter that we put out twice a month. So if you want to get on the newsletter, let me know about that as well. We'll be glad to put you on the newsletter.
1: All right. Well, thank you so very much, Richard.
2: Thank you, Tanya. You take care now. Okay. Bye-bye.
1: So what did you think? Wasn't Richard just incredible talking about how wonderful workplaces can be, even if you are under austerity conditions? Amazing. He talked about how if information is shared Widely throughout an organization, so that it doesn't really matter who you speak to, everybody is informed of what is going on. That is absolutely incredible. He's describing an environment where everybody is rowing in the same direction so that you can go to incredible heights, as he described. He talked about not only turning the plant around from being one of the plants to be destined to be closed, but He made it one of the most profitable plants that had an incredible safety record, an amazing environmental record, amazing community relations, and the internal workplace culture was so inspiring. When you heard him talk about not only did people grow together, he reflected that he underwent personal growth himself. That didn't come for free completely. He did need to get to a state of humility and vulnerability, which you have heard about in the podcast, but it is amazing when everybody can work on the same page, just how far you can go and how meaningful work becomes. So, I really, really hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you so much for listening to What Good Looks Like on Beyond the Minimum.
0: Thank you so much for listening to Beyond the Minimum with Tanya Hewitt. We hope this episode aligned with you. Maybe it was diametrically opposed to you, but at any rate, we trust it made you think. The more we can think about our workplaces and start talking about them, the more we can collectively make a real difference. If you're living in Canada, please find out the indigenous territory in which you reside and begin using it to introduce yourself. Please reach out to Tanya through her email, tanya at beyondsafetycompliance.ca. Connect and chat with her on LinkedIn. Follow her company Beyond Safety Compliance and remember to ask yourself the question, how does your work look? Because we can always go beyond the minimum.